0: Terms
1: apply. I'm Barbara Jones-Brown, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents.
2: The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. Mountain Meadows Massacre is a difficult topic to talk about. Some people just don't want to. I asked Barbara Jones-Brown and Richard Turley why we should talk about that, or if we should talk about that. So, we'll also talk about who bears the most blame for the massacre, and whether the church really did apologize or not. So, you won't want to miss this conversation as we talk about future projects Barbara and Rick are working on. They'll definitely be happier topics than this. Check out our conversation. Mountain Meadows is such a terrible atrocity, terrible, it's the worst experience in in Mormonism, worst chapter in Mormon history, I would say. Um, There are a lot of people who don't like to talk about it. What lessons should we learn, and is it a good idea to keep talking about it?
1: Absolutely. Um, so much good has come from talking about it, starting with the first book that was published in 2008, Massacre at Mount Meadows, and now again with this book. It has been such a painful subject for generations in Utah and in Latter-day Saint history for descendants of perpetrators. And it's been such a painful subject for descendants of victims as well. Only by talking about it and being willing to dig into it and learn about it can we eventually move forward. You can't feel sorrow or sorry for something that happened if you don't understand what happened. You can't uh, then apologize to descendants of victims if you don't feel sorry for what happened. And you can't uh, seek reconciliation until you apologize. And only through doing those things, seeking reconciliation, can you find peace. And Rick and I have both found, and many others, by expressing our sorrow to descendants of victims, we have found peace, not only for ourselves in so doing, but peace for the descendants of victims that just want the true story about their innocent ancestors told and acknowledged and sorrow expressed. And in so doing, we have found some fabulous friendships, some lifelong friendships and healing and peace. So we want everyone who is willing to grapple with this very difficult subject to experience that. And so we can find that reconciliation, peace, and healing. The book is difficult to read. It's painful. It it goes into the nitty-gritty. It's hard. We've had several people who've been reading it who say, "I, I whether they're descendants of victims or perpetrators or just Latter-day Saints, who say, I have to read a chapter and then put it down for a little while um, before I can come back and grapple with it. But for those that are willing to do that, we're we're, we're promising people that at the other end, there can be healing and peace, and that's why we wrote these books.
0: We found people, particularly in Utah, who want to say, let's just not talk about it, that's taboo.
2: <laughs> I know lots or, of people.
0: Well, like for
1: that. generations that was the case, right?
0: Or yeah. they want to deny that it happened, or they want to put the blame on Paiutes, or they want to say it was all John D. Lee. It
2: was or a military the, operation, or I heard that one.
0: Th- they've, there's lots of different excuses, Blame the victims. Yeah. So what we tell them is we say, look, no one alive today is responsible for the massacre, but we're all responsible for how we deal with the subject. And when people seek to deny it or seek to justify it in any way or to condone it or to blame the victims or to blame Paiutes as the sole you know, committers of this massacre, all of those people then take responsibility for the wrong that they've done in telling those stories which are not true. So the only way, the only way to get past this subject, if you're somehow feeling a collective community guilt as a Utah citizen or a Latter-day Saint, or perhaps as the descendant of a perpetrator, the only way you can get past this is to acknowledge the truth in its entirety, not seek to justify it in any way, Place the blame where it squarely belongs on white Southern Utah leaders and then express your sorrow to the relatives of the victims for what was done to them. Also, to show respect for the property at Mountain Meadows where the remains of these people still lie. One of the things that really bothers me is when I go down to the Mountain Meadows where there have now been many monuments and signs erected, and to see graffiti scratched onto these monuments expressing one of these false narratives about what really happened down there. That's not the way to come to peace and reconciliation. Acknowledge the truth, and then as the New Testament says, the truth will make you free.
1: Uh, Rick and I recently presented our research along with Janice Johnson at the Mormon History Association Conference, and... Uh, Utah, University of Utah history professor Paul Reeve was the moderator for the session. And he began by saying that when he, he teaches Utah history to college students here in Utah. And when he began teaching it, like most of his students, when he would teach the Mountain Meadows Massacre, most of his students had never heard of it. Really, He said, yeah, this was years ago when he first started. He says, now when I teach it, there is, very rarely, anyone who hasn't heard of the Mountain Meadows massacre. So that—that's our end goal. We want people to understand it, um, to know that it occurred, to to be willing to grapple with it, and then uh, say sorry for it.
2: Well, and I guess we'll we'll end with who's most to blame. Um, Tell me if, if this is what you agree with. Sounds like William Dame, he was the most senior officer. Yes. Would we put him at the top? I don't think he's the most to blame, but he was the senior most military officer. Okay. Yeah.
0: What do you think?
1: Um, yeah. There. I guess I would say there had to be a perfect storm of factors and contexts and people. Okay. Um. So does— so, yes, Isaac Haight, absolutely.
2: Put him second, probably, or first, or one and one. I one don't A know. Kind he, of all. Did
1: John he, D. Lee, absolutely. Philip Clayton Klingens, Smith, absolutely. I mean, there's so many. James, Buchan- James Buchanan for sending an army. To Utah, okay, in 1857, not explaining to the Saints why troops are going, not bothering to understand that the Latter Day Saints have been driven by troops from Missouri and Illinois in the past ten years, and not realizing they're going to react. You know, okay. they're going to there's going to the be, be some war hysteria. Some well, I mean, not directly, for, but but again, like there's so many different things that had to happen. Um.
2: Well, it is called Buchanan's folly, and it's Congress did Buchanan's say, blender. "Hey, what do you do? Yeah. Pull the troops back." So,
1: yeah. th- there. One of the
0: ways to look at this is to say there's plenty of blame to grow around. Sure, President yeah. Buchanan, Brigham Young, Brigham Young, the local people, yep. folks generally who were committing violence during this time period. When you look at causation from either a logical or a legal perspective, what you generally do is you want to go back to find out who's really responsible for the crime. In this case, the local ringleaders in southern Utah are the ones who initiate what goes on with the initial attack. And Isaac Hate can say, Well, I was calling off John D. Lee, but he was the one that set him in motion. Then Lee is to blame for jumping the gun. People die. Then Hate is to blame for wanting to wipe everybody out now as a cover up for what was done wrong previously.
1: all the way up to Dame and then Brigham Young for having this policy for encouraging raiding of immigrant cattle and for using violent rhetoric. So that's what I mean. It's just you have to look at the entire context. <laughs> everything has to be in of Everything that's going on and it all came together in one moment that and led to this horrific storm, atrocity. Yeah, perfect storm. Yeah.
0: But if if I had to choose one person who initiated it all, it would be Isaac Haight.
2: Okay. He's-
1: But I think more important, I'd like to ask a different question, and that is who is innocent? And most important, we just need to make it clear that the people who were cruelly massacred at Mount Meadows were innocent of any wrongdoing, and we need to stop and get away from any kind of uh, blaming of them That they somehow deserve this, which was again perpetuated for generations by perpetrators of the crime who wanted to justify what they'd done. And we also need to take the onus of this off the shoulders of the Paiute people. Yes, a small number of Indians participated, but they were roped into participating so that the white perpetrators who orchestrated and planned and largely carried this out could blame it on them. So we need to get away from blaming them and, and recognize that the Paiute people as a whole. Are innocent, and we need to stop blaming Indians. Do we for need this. to
2: apologize to the Paiutes?
1: There was a statement of of regret that when um, in two thousand and seven, when then Elder Henry Bay Irene read that apology, he did apologize to the Paiute people too for wasn't for, it an apology
2: <laughs> because I know yeah. there's a legal definition of apology, and I mean I just had a really interesting experience with the community of Christ. And and Rick, you're a lawyer. Um, where they were talking about the there was a, a resolution before the Community of Christ where they wanted to officially apologize for past racism. They debated it for a couple of days. The resolution actually passed. Everybody went to lunch. They came back. What's the and wording? There was an announcement that said. Our lawyers have said, we can't do this, and we're not going to have any more discussion. <laughs> Case closed. And so I know with Elder Oaks, he's famous for saying the church doesn't apologize and doesn't seek apologies. Um, and it sounds like for legal reasons, because if you do, then you have to do reparations and you can get sued and this sort of a thing. Um and so that's why the statement of regret by Elder Eyring was made, was it's it's the closest thing to an apology as we're going to get. So well, it if, was
1: an apology. <laughs> I,
0: I was down there
2: yeah, at the we
1: time were, it we happened. We were both there. Okay. okay.
0: And there was a news conference held afterward, and I was part of the news conference. And one of the first questions I got was the question that you're asking. I didn't hear the word sorry used. And my answer was, I am sorry. I'm very, very sorry that it happened. Then the next day I was headed back to Salt Lake City and Phil Bollinger, who was the president of the Mount Meadows Monument Foundation, he was headed back towards Arkansas. And both of us on the phone had an interview with a PBS station, significant PBS station in Las Vegas. And the, the interviewer in Las Vegas said to me, well, now, Mr. Turley, I didn't hear the word sorry in that statement. And Phil Bollinger who was also on the line said, Rick, I felt the emotion in Elder Iring's voice. I th- heard you say you're sorry. You don't have to say it again. Oh, wow. And so in our interactions with descendants of the victims, they have felt our sorrow that it happened. And they know that many others feel the same way. And what they want is they want the truth, and they want the place where their ancestors remain still alive to be protected, which is why we cooperated with them in establishing the Mountain Meadows as a national historic landmark, something that was first proposed by the Mountain Meadows Monument Foundation and then joined in by the other two organizations. We helped prepare the documentation. We went to Washington with them and we advocated for that. And then we were there when the director of Zion National Park, representing the Secretary of the Interior, came in and gave the plaques that officially recognized Mountain Meadows as a National Historic Landmark.
1: I would encourage anyone who wants to read that statement. Is that on mountainmeadowsmassacre.org? Uh,
0: no, but it's on the church's website. Yeah, you so can you can it.
1: you can find it. You can Google it and read it and see what you think. I, I mean, I was there. I was listening. I heard Elder Iron read it. And and then I heard Rick immediately after, they said, was that an apology? And Rick said, that was an apology. It was intended an apology. You know, we're we're sorry, you know, I so for me, yeah, it was an apology. So people can read it and see what they make whatever judgment they want to make. But believe me, the the church history department's funding for years, the research behind this. And then uh, funding the protection, you know, the land at the Mount Meadows to make sure it's protected forever. Working with descendants of the victims to put up new monuments. To me, that shows you're sorry. Mm -hmm. That shows you're trying to make this things right and make restitution.
0: And so how do we respond when people say, why can't you just forget it? We say there are a couple of reasons why you don't want to forget it. Number one, look at it from the perspective of the victims. Latter-day Saints— commemorate the killing of Joseph and Hiram Smith in Carthage, Illinois. Certainly not one of the happiest moments in the history of that small community. And yet we regularly tell the story on the site because it's important to us and our history. To relatives of the victims, the story of their ancestors is extremely important and we should accord them that same recognition. The second reason that we should not forget this is that there are some important lessons to be learned. Now, we might say, well, I would never do that. Our hope has been that people reading Massacre Mount Meadows and now Vengeance is Mine won't glibly say, I'd never have done that, because that's too glib, too easy to say that. What they really need to do is look in the mirror and say, what would I have done? If the pressure had been on me, if I had been a local militiaman, if I had been called out, if I had been with a group of people who were arming to do this, would I have had the courage to say no? Because example after example after example, this type of mob mentality and vigilante justice suggests that very few are the people who have the courage to say no under those circumstances. Well, during our lifetimes, we'll all find ourselves in circumstances where the peer pressure is strong to do something wrong. So we should look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what am I going to do? When that moment comes, am I going to go along with the crowd because the pressure is strong and I don't want to be different? Or am I going to step away and perhaps be alone in standing up for what I know deep in my heart is right?
2: Very good. Any last words that either one of you want to share on this topic? I
1: think we covered it. Thank you so much. For- yes, thank you. Inviting us to come on and talk about our research and well talk I appreciate about
2: this. it. I think this is really a game changer with the with respect to the narrative on Mount Meadows. And I I mean I thought it was a fantastic book. I thank you both. Thank um, you, Rick. I do want to ask What what projects are you working on for the future? What I I think you're probably going to put this in the back door. Yeah. So after
1: (laughs) we don't have to touch
2: it again. But what else are you working on?
1: For me, after working on this very, very depressing, very heavy, very sad topic for 18 years, um, I'm looking for something inspiring, and so I'm writing the biography of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and uh working with her is she a well-behaved woman she yeah in fact you've got we've got her books right here um she That's coined her the fa- phrase what's your famous saying yeah she's most famous for coining the phrase well-behaved women seldom make history but she's been a mentor to me and countless other historians especially uh, uh mormon women historians and feminists alike uh she's a fantastic Pulitzer Prize-winning Bancroft Prize-winning MacArthur Genius Award-winning Harvard uh, endowed chair professor, uh, influencing American history as well. So it's a worthy topic, and it's so inspiring to work with her. So that's and it's fun that's, that's that been she's great. She's
2: still alive, right? You can talk. Oh, to her. absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I'm
1: working with her. I went and stayed with her and her husband for a week uh, recently, and just went through her papers and did a lot of oral history interviews, and I'm really excited about this biography.
2: Cool.
0: I'm working on two things, one main thing, and then one sort of hobby topic. The main thing I'm focused on now in my retirement is Joseph Smith. We've just finished the Joseph Smith papers, and that provides a foundation for delving into his life in a way that's never been done before. So I'm spending my full time just studying Joseph Smith. And when I need a break and everyone needs a break, Joseph Smith said, everyone needs to unstring the bow from time to time to, <laughs> to make sure that the bow you know keeps its spring. So when others might watch a basketball game or football game, I will pull out documentation on John Wesley Powell. You know that in Vengeance is Mine, we run into John Wesley Powell and his men repeatedly. They're part of the story, as are Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln and Sam Houston and other you know, prominent Americans. But in writing the book, we visited all all the locations we could that are in the book. And so we visited places where John Wesley Powell and his men are. I became interested in them, began to collect their writings. And then following that rule that we follow that we've got to go every place that they went, I've spent time each summer running down a portion of the green or Colorado rivers. I just got back from a trip on the green. And last year I ran the entire Grand Canyon, 280 miles in 17 days on a raft. So, that's my hobby book that I work on part-time when I just need to relax, and I'm not working
2: on Joseph Smith. So is Joseph Smith going to be a book then? This,
0: Joseph Smith, you won't see anything rough about Stone rolling, too. <laughs> you won't see anything about this soon, but we're doing a lot of research on Joseph Smith that goes above and beyond what the papers do. The okay. papers are focused on his papers, and that lays a really, really good foundation. But there's a lot about Joseph Smith that can't technically be classified as a paper. And so I and some colleagues are looking at Joseph Smith, I think, in a new way. Okay. And I'll just uh, tease it at that for right now. Because
2: <laughs> I think uh, John Turner's doing a Joseph Smith biography too, right? John
0: is, yes. And mm-hmm. he and I have had had discussions. I I think his is close to being done. Okay.
1: Yeah, we cite Turner's biography of Brigham Young in Vengeance is Mine. He does great work.
2: I need to get John Turner on for sure. All right. Well, it's so awesome to talk to you two again. Um, I I really appreciate you for being here on Gospel Tangents, and I can't wait for your next projects.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rick.
2: Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rick Turley and Barbara Jones-Brown. Rick and Barbara, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was a fantastic conversation, as always. And I just want to encourage everybody, go out. If you don't have Vengeance is Mine, you've got to get it. I've got an autographed copy around here somewhere, and it's a fantastic book, and it's really groundbreaking. So you definitely want to get this and find out the real story about the trials of John D. Lee. In our next conversation, we're going to dive deep into Book of Mormon translation with Jim Lucas and Jonathan Neville. That's right. Okay. Yeah, use that. I'll show you the blue one. <laughs> there we <laughs> go. A little bit more contrast. There. So that's our, our. You can see the logo
0: is U and T. <laughs> and then on the back, we have a little uh, logo with a top hat with a line through it.
2: <laughs> it's not that, the sear stone in no the That's no seer stone in the hat. No huh? sear stone in the hat. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at GospelTangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on YouTube.com slash GospelTangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for uh, full videos. So subscribe at GospelTangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom, and you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, t-shirts, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully I can get up, up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents and click here for some more videos. For the ones who
0: work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased
0: by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.